When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your computer makes thousands of connections every day, just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. Okay, before we start the show, uh, I just want to talk about Hannah Fry's new book, Hello World, all about algorithms and how they affect our lives. We've talked a lot about algorithms. They're used in healthcare, finance, security, all kinds of areas. I mean, in finance, they're kind of making decisions about when to buy stocks and when to sell stocks much faster and arguably much better than is possible for a human to do. And so the book is all about, you know, how we look at these algorithms, how we sort of live alongside them now. Things like driverless cars, you know, how do we decide what we want a driverless car to actually do? It's all going to be there in the algorithm. We've got to create the algorithm. And it turns out that if you do research into what people want from these kind of driverless car algorithms, it turns out they want to be in a car that's really safe and prioritizes their life over the lives of pedestrians. In the unfortunate event of a crash being about to happen, people want to be in a car that prioritizes them. And if they're a pedestrian, on the other hand, they want driverless cars to be prioritizing pedestrians. These are difficult things to deal with. And we have to sort of get to the point where we trust these things if they're coming through. So various machines and algorithms have been set up in order to improve safety. So there's the classic Alton Towers Smiler crash, where the algorithm said, you know, this needs to be stopped. And somebody operating the ride basically overrode the algorithm and, and said, no, we've got to carry on. And there was a horrific crash. We could have had World War Three on our hands with some of the algorithms saying, you know, we definitely needed to fire missiles. There was a Russian officer during the Cold War who spotted incoming missiles and had to decide whether they were actually coming or if the machine had got it wrong. He decided in that case that the machine was wrong and we should all be very grateful that he did. Otherwise, we might be living in the fallout of World War Three already. So this is all the kind of interesting stuff that Hannah discusses in her book. How can we trust machines? When should we rely on our instincts? And Hannah lifts the lid on all of this stuff and explaining the inner workings of the algorithms. So Hello World is out in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. So go and get a copy from Amazon. You can follow Hannah at at squared on Twitter. told me not to stare into the sun. Max Cohen is searching for order in a world of chaos. How could you stop believing that there is a pattern, an ordered shape behind those numbers? We see the simplicity of the circle. We see the maddening complexity of the endless string of numbers. 3.14 off into infinity. Oh, the ancient Jews used Hebrew as their numerical system. Eh? Each letter is a number. Torah is just a long string of numbers. Some say that it's a code sent to us from God. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Who doesn't like pie? Of course, if you drop the E in it, you'll drop some of the enthusiasm. But the true mathletes out there can always bake up a little fun on Pi Day. 
It's celebrated every year on March 14th. That's 314 is in the first few digits of pi, the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. Pi is a special number because it keeps reappearing all over mathematics. It's surprising that this particular number just keeps coming up, keeps coming up. There is a pattern, an order. Maybe that pattern is like the pattern in the stock market, the Torah. This 216 number. This is insanity, Max. Or maybe it's genius. You could call our fascination with it irrational, and that's just the kind of number it is, an irrational one. It just goes on and on without stopping or repeating, at least as far as we know. Clearly, mathematics has some deep connection to the world. Some people think it's because the world is essentially made of mathematics. Other people think, no, this is something to do with the, the, the way human beings think about the world. This is a human pattern-seeking feature. The pursuit of knowledge. Hello and welcome to Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. So we take, uh, as always, one piece of fiction and ask one big question of it. This week it's Brooks's turn to lead us. What have you got? We are looking at the great film Pi. Oh, very nice. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> quite a tough watch. It's, yeah, it is. A, it's a Darren Aronofsky, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of, I would say, finding his feet as a filmmaker. Well, he finds them very well. But you, he tries out a lot of stuff in Pi that I would argue doesn't work brilliantly and is quite a hard watch that he gets right in Requiem for a Dream, his next film. Which I haven't yet seen. Uh, so you keep recommending it to you've me. Got, I, you've yeah. got to watch it. It's, it's, a lot, it. it's a lot better than Pi. Although Pi is a kind of a, is an extraordinary film. Yeah, yeah. But it's not... I mean, did you enjoy watching it? No. No. no, no, At no point did I enjoy watching that film. That sounds like it's condemning the film. Actually, it's a really good film, but it's just a very uncomfortable watch. So basically, if you haven't seen it, uh, it follows a guy called Maximilian Cohen, who's a mathematician, and he sort of, you know, basically lives in his apartment trying to figure out special significance from the stock market. He's got all these figures coming in. He's got a computer set up called Euclid, that's sort of supposed to be like picking stocks, but also just looking for patterns and trying to make sense of, of what's going on. And then his, his computer spits out a 216-digit number, and uh, he doesn't know what this is, and the computer kind of crashes straight after this. And it also picks out a really odd stock pick, and he, which he thinks, so, so it's just gone wrong. But it turns out the stock pick would have been a great one, and so he wants to find out the significance of the number, gets involved with uh, stock, uh, some stock traders who are trying to use his insights and stuff, and it all just goes horribly wrong. So what's our big question going to be then? So the big question is very straightforward. Do some numbers have special significance? I'm really, I'm genuinely, of all the episodes we've ever done, done a lot of episodes now, I think I might be most pumped about this. <laughs> As you know, I'd rather that the podcast was called Maths-ish. <laughs> so um, who have we tracked down to absolutely annihilate the question? So we have got Ian Stewart. Oh, great. Maths absolute don. Uh, University of Warwick emeritus professor, uh, author of numerous fantastic books about maths. So we start by asking, well, basically about pi and uh, when humans first discovered pi and why it's so special. Human discovery of pi certainly goes back to ancient Babylon in about 1500 to 2000 BC. And it's because pi is connected with circles. And they approximated pi as three and one eighth, um, which is not very good, actually. Um, And then over the years, 
people discovered better and better ways of calculating pi and getting more and more accurate versions. Big discovery is Archimedes, the ancient Greek, about 200 BC. And he proved that pi is somewhere between 3 and 10 over 71 and 3 and 1 seventh, which of course is the standard thing we use at school. And he did this by looking at the circumference of a 96-sided polygon. And he calculated that. And then you get uh, contributions from the Chinese around 263 AD. Um, 469 AD, they know pi to about seven digits. An Indian called Madhava of Sangamagrama in 1400 found a much more efficient way of calculating pi using what's called an infinite series. So this is adding infinitely many numbers together, but they get smaller and smaller, so the final result still makes sense. And he got as far as 11 digits of pi. This is the man who says he can take pi to at least 64. Let's see what he can do. 3.141592653589. And after a while, people just started breaking the record. By 1946, computing by hand, Daniel Ferguson got to 620 digits, which sounded, you know, pretty good. But of course, at that point, the computer takes over. And so the record now, or in 2016, is 22 trillion digits of pi by Peter Troop. Five, nine, two, three, maybe not positive. How did you possibly learn that? Uh, just screwing around for pi day. That's incredible. Well, we'll check Pi is a special number because it keeps reappearing all over mathematics. Um, it, it, it's surprising that this particular number just keeps coming up, keeps coming up. But if, if you dig into why it's happening, it goes right back to the ancient Babylonians and the idea that pi is related to circles. So a circle is a very, very basic mathematical concept. And it's a simple geometric concept, which is how the Babylonians thought of it. But it's also related to things like rotations. So we're talking about symmetries, we're talking about moving objects in space. So it's got a deeper set of implications. Pi comes up anywhere there's a circle, even if the circle is hidden away and you don't think it's there. It comes up in probability theory to do with the, the so-called bell curve. Mathematicians call it the normal distribution. It comes up in quantum mechanics. <laughs> because of rotations. So pi is special because circles and spheres and rotations are very, very fundamental. This is already your favorite yeah, episode, isn't it? It's so good. So this, um, this enthusiasm for pi isn't just mathematicians getting giddy about it. Pi is genuinely pi is mental. Very, very important. Yeah, it? yeah. I mean, you know, you've got this very, very simple relationship of the circumference to the diameter of a circle, you know, pretty much the most basic thing you can think of. And it creates this, this ratio that we call pi, which never ends. So, so you can keep pumping out the digits and it never ends. Stephen Strogas, the, the mathematician, said it puts infinity within reach. I mean, that's the kind of beauty of pi. Obviously, I could talk about pi for a long time, but I think we should I think we've probably done enough other, on pi, yeah, don't you? Do, do some other numbers. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning. With zero. Um, I once had an excellent argument with another T4 presenter who shall remain nameless about whether zero was a number or not. 
and they were saying it wasn't. And I when were they living? About quickly, like, like 400 BC. Yeah, I quickly tired of the argument. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's quite interesting that people would still have that viewpoint because that is how, for most of human history, people mm. were thinking. You know, so yeah. zero started life really as just a way of distinguishing different columns in doing arithmetic. So you needed something to be able to sort of put in a, a placeholder effectively. So yeah. that, that was the Babylonians managed that about 300 BC. But that still didn't make zero a number. And it was really not until um, there was an Indian astronomer, a mathematician called Brahmagupta. In 628, he comes up with a written idea of zero as a proper number mm. rather than like a decimal point or you know a bit of the furniture yeah. for maths. Mm-hmm. So then we start to play around with the idea of zero being actually part of the number line. So you have five, four, three, two, one, and you can have minus one, minus two, and zero sort of sits in there between. And that allows you to do that kind of arithmetic where you work with all kinds of numbers. That was my principal line of argument with my colleague where I said, but if you think about counting, to just go three, two, one, uh, minus one. (laughs) How are you filling in that gap? Yeah. Um, And he still wasn't having it. But it it was quite scary for people when people started using this normally. So once you had sort of Islamic traders arriving in Europe, for instance, with this concept of Trying to sell zero. Basically selling zero (laughs) and doing their accounting with zeros in it. Yeah. And there was actually one time there was a riot in some town in Italy where the local market people were like, we're not having this. You know, they're coming in, they're basically trying to mug us off. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it took a long time for people to get used to this sort of way of accounting. I love the idea of the Islamic traders coming in just with truckloads of zeros. Going, get your zeros. <laughs> Who wants your zeros? They weren't selling zeros, Rick. They were. Well, they, they were. In a way, In a way, were. they were. So people started to realise they were useful. And the church didn't like it because it sort of allowed people to go to debt so once you've got this whole number line you sort of start opening up all kinds of things the ancient japanese considered the go board to be a microcosm of the universe although when it is empty it appears to be simple and ordered the possibilities of gameplay are endless they say no two go games have ever been alike just like snowflakes so the go board actually represents an extremely complex and chaotic universe. One of my favourite sort of moments of, of discovery in mass is when you go from just the real numbers to entirely, like in, in some senses, made-up numbers, so <laughs> imaginary numbers, yeah. and how important they are. When did we first start using imaginary numbers? Or define an imaginary number? Well, so an imaginary number, or I is the square root of minus one. So when you square a number, normally, like two times two, you get four. Four. Well done, yeah. I didn't even ask, because I was pretty sure you'd be on that. Yeah. 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 And then if you take a negative number, you square that, minus two times minus two. Four. Yeah, there you go. So the reverse process is to square root. So how can you ever square root a negative number? Well, you can't because there's not, there's two, not a square two numbers that, you that you can multiply number. together that would yeah. give you a negative. Yeah. But there was a guy in the 16th century called Jerome Cardano who was solving... Name rings a bell. Name rings a bell. Oh, because mm. oh, oh, I wrote a book about him. Yeah, Just yeah. cut this bit out. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> the Quantum Astrologer's Handbook. Telegraph Book of the Year, it was actually. Uh, anyway, so Cardano is solving quadratic equations and during the process of coming up with his solutions, he finds that sometimes he's got the square root of a negative number there in his workings. And he's the first guy to say, 
oh, this is interesting. You know, this seems to be there. Everyone else who'd come across it before said they'd made a mistake. Just kind of discard it. You just think, oh, okay. Yeah. And, and particularly... Take you know, no notice you of it. Solve quadratic, quadratic equations graphically. Yeah. And you kind of just, oh, it's, it's not crossing the axis, therefore there can't, be a, there can't be a solution. Yeah. And you kind of go, oh, fine, fine then. Yeah, yeah. But um, so Cardano actually said, you know what, these are interesting. He, he said they're not positive, they're not negative. They're some, what he called, recondite third sort of thing. And he didn't really know what they were used for. And it was a guy called Raphael Bombelli who really took it on a sort of few decades later and, and sort of made them useful. But yeah, these things are incredibly important to modern life. They effectively are always involved in things that cycle with waves and whatever. Much like pi. So it's, it's yeah. often attendant with pi, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. So you have these things. And so engineers have to use them. If they're building bridges, if they're building electronics, you know, your phone uh, software requires, you know, Fourier analysis and, and complex analysis of, of waves and things to compress music, for instance. So these things are incredibly difficult to conceptualize in that they're not part of the real number line, as it were, but they're still incredibly useful in the real world. Almost the terminology imaginary is slightly misleading, isn't it? Because yeah. it suggests that they are unreal, that we've we've made them up, but in, in some space they exist. Yeah. Um, uh, Euler's uh, remind me of Euler's identity because I like it. It relates everything, doesn't it? it relates all the big numbers. Euler's identity is it Euler? It's Euler. Luckily, I've never met him. <laughs> Euler's identity is insane. So this is e. This number e first was brought out in the 17th century. Yeah, as uh, just a, a, a. I mean, it's just a number, isn't it? What am I going to say about it? It's a uh, um, like 2.718 Yeah, blah blah blah. Goes on and on. Um, and this number, uh, e raised to the i pi, so raised to the power of the imaginary number times pi, plus one equals zero. Absolutely love that shit. So it's like relating That's these sick. like fundamental concepts of zero, one, like the real numbers, imaginary numbers, pi, and then this weird Euler's number. Mm. So there's this whole thing about these numbers you look for sort of you know we call them natural or beautiful you've got all these sort of relationships between these numbers and and those numbers actually then produce things in the physical world so so they actually produce patterns effectively in what we see in nature and this is something that the professor ian spent a lot of time sort of looking at and trying to explain the natural world seems to be full of patterns regular patterns and snail shell there's a spiral if you look at a fern, you see the little bits of the fern look like the whole fern. So there are these mathematical structures in nature, and I think our brains are somehow, they've evolved to pick up on those patterns and say, oh, that's interesting. Now, Mathematicians explain these patterns in terms of what's called symmetry breaking. So the idea is symmetry is very fundamental in the way we understand physics and the universe. Um, symmetry means if you move things around a bit, they still look the same. So if you have a, a flat pond with uh, absolutely nothing happening on the surface of the pond, it looks incredibly boring mathematically, but actually, however you slide the surface of the pond around, it looks the same. There's no features that distinguish it. Now suppose I throw a stone into the pond. Suddenly we get ripples spreading from the stone. And 
no longer is the pond dull and boring, but actually it's lost symmetry because now you can't move it around in the same way. The center of the pattern where the stone went in has to be fixed. But you look at the pattern the stone has created and you find it's still very symmetric. It's expanding circular ripples. And that's because the rotational symmetry has still been preserved, it's still there. So throwing the stone into the pond breaks the symmetries that slide the surface of the pond sideways, but preserves the ones that rotate it. And we notice the pattern when there's a little bit less symmetry than all possible movements of the surface. Why do zebras have stripes? The answer to that question, which scientists have wrestled with for over a century... One of the places where we all see patterns and, and look at them and say, oh, isn't that beautiful, are markings on animals. You've got stripes on tigers, stripes on zebras, spots on leopards, um, lots and lots of different patterns on animals, on fish. Alan Turing, who is best known, I think, for his um, code-breaking work during World War II, um, Turing got very interested after the war in the mathematics of animal patterns. And he came up with a symmetry-breaking theory as to how these patterns arose. And his idea was essentially that when the animal is still an embryo, um, a pre-pattern, a chemical pattern that you can't actually see, is laid down by a symmetry-breaking mechanism. So it's very like the ripples on a pond, but instead of producing circular ripples, it produces naturally produces spots and stripes. A completely uniform animal coat, like perhaps a lion, which is a sort of orange. <laughs> um, if you break the symmetry of this plain orange flat surface, you can get stripes. And if you have two sets of stripes that kind of cross each other, effectively that gives spots. Our daughter was um about uh, five, and I was reading to her a story by Kipling called How the Leopard Gets Its Spots. So all of this is to do with wave patterns in chemicals. And James Murray, a mathematical biologist, proved a theorem about spots and stripes. I took the idea of pattern formation, spatial pattern formation, from uh, Alan Turing's classical paper in, 19, in the 1954, I think it was. The theorem is a spotted animal can have a striped tail, but striped animals can't have spotted tails. And if you take something like a tiger, which is striped, and look at its tail, the tail is still striped. But some animals with spots, if you look at the tip of the tail, you will see stripes going all the way around. Essentially, the reason is that you have to have more room to fit the spots in. You have to fit two different sets of waves. And the tail is too thin. <laughs> so the fat bit of the animal can have spots, but the thin bit would normally have stripes. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to enjoy there. Um, uh, first of all, I don't think Ian's ever seen a lion if he thinks it's orange. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's golden. Golden. Let's call it golden. Yeah, it's not orange, no. <laughs> it's been out in the sun too much. <laughs> He's just looking at a ginger cat. <laughs> 
Um, also, I'm still slightly really over the fact that I've been pronouncing um, Euler as Euler. So I was thinking about that, and I think what it shows is that you think a lot about mathematics, you read a lot about mathematics. Nobody yeah. ever wants to talk to you about mathematics. That's right. That's right. So you've never had that, that correction. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I did talk about that. <laughs> Let me quickly just bring Something in Euler. Something I've learned uh, today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so nature then seems to prefer certain patterns and arrangements over others yeah that's the idea that we're getting yeah and and, and that's definitely the case and, and it's interesting because you can tell when uh, things don't look quite right for instance recently uh, cairo zoo painted a donkey to look like a zebra <laughs> <laughs> they haven't done perfect. an amazing job yeah they've done their best but also i think in the heat the uh, the paint has started to smudge a bit which <laughs> is a telltale sign yeah um, not, that, that is the only not way a zebra. that you can um you can get a spotted tail on a yeah. striped animal if you paint if it you on. Paint it on. <laughs> yeah, then it's no problem. <laughs> but there are, I mean, there's this extraordinary thing that occurs all the time in nature. I mean, you can start with a line uh, and you break it up into two uneven segments. And if the ratio of the longer one to the shorter one is basically the same as the ratio of the longer one to the whole length, mm-hmm. then you're in something called the golden ratio. So if you look at a spiral shell, for instance, you can break up the pattern into rectangles effectively yeah. that give you the golden ratio and one of the amazing things is the angles at which leaves grow on plants the angles around the stem they're distributed in the golden ratio and if you distribute the leaves at that distribution it means that they are in a place where they can get the most sun and are not covered by other leaves above them and stuff like that so nature sort of uses this all the time even like i've seen um studies done where you can measure ratios on people's faces and the closer that the ratios are to the golden ratio, the more attractive those people will be yeah. uh, deemed to be. We seem to really like looking at this. It sort of feels more natural. So if you give people a choice of looking at a rectangle that's in some random proportion and in the proportion of the golden ratio, then they take that every time. So when you frame a shot on TV, you tend to put the, the principal subject of the frame at a certain point that is defined effectively by the golden ratio. Hard to suggest that it's not innate, because that's one of the big questions, isn't it? Whether maths is just created by us, or if there is something innate about mathematics. And when you yeah. see something like the golden ratio in black holes, in plants, in in architecture that we like, you start to think, well, this must be just part of the fabric of our existence. I think so, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm of the view that that the mathematical world kind of exists out there and we're sort of discovering it and we're sort of making little forays into understanding where it comes from. And, And I think the golden ratio is one of those sort of fundamental things about somehow in the way that the universe was created, you know, there is this, um, there is this sort of property that exists. The ancient Jews used Hebrew as their numerical system. Eh? Each letter's a number. Check this out, okay? The word for the Garden of Eden, Kadem. Numerical translation, 144. Now, the value of tree of knowledge, all right, in the garden, right? Eitz Hachayim, 233. 144, 233. Now, you can those take those numbers. numbers. So, the, you know, like the Fibonacci sequence? Fibonacci... Fibonacci is um, an Italian mathematician in the 13th century. If you divide 144 into 233, the result approaches um, theta. Theta? Theta. The Greek symbol for golden ratio, golden spiral. 
What about uh, Fibonacci? That crops up a lot as well. So the Fibonacci sequences, which is where you add the two sort of existing numbers to get the next number in the sequence. Yeah. So it goes 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, and so on. Yeah. And basically, if you take two successive Fibonacci numbers, their ratio is pretty close to the golden ratio. Mm -hmm. And the further you go along the sequence, the closer it becomes. Mm -hmm. So they kind of converge towards the golden ratio. And again, it's just like, that's interesting. Yeah, and it, you see that in um, in petals in flowers and stuff yeah, like that, don't you? As you, yeah, as you go and the outwards. spirals of uh, sunflower seeds and things yeah. like that. So could there be a mathematical theory of everything that would describe everything around us? It's really difficult. So Leibniz famously had this idea. He said, well, you, know, you can describe complexity. So he talked about like splattering ink randomly across a surface. And he said, you could create a curve that would hit every point where the ink is on the paper. But it would be incredibly complex to describe that curve. So you couldn't have a simple theory of what that curve is. So when you've got randomness in the universe, which we do seem to have, and you've got randomness in the digits of pi, so you kind of think randomness is inherent. And that means you can never have a really succinct description. Because effectively, a theory of everything is looking for a simple description that then blows up to give you all the complexity. Yeah. But actually, when there's randomness in all that complexity, then you can't have a simple description. So you can't really get a theory of everything. Yeah. So we have pi, we've got E, Euler's number, yeah. as I like to call it. Uh -huh. Euler's number, as you like to call yes. it. Yeah. All this stuff. You know, For all the randomness that's inherent in the universe, we do seem to have a universe where certain numbers do stand out. So we asked Professor Stewart to make sense of it all. When you think about numbers, you realise that some of them seem to be much more special than others. They're much more significant. Golden ratio, pi, things like that. You know, in principle, you think all numbers are kind of, they're all the same, aren't they? They're just numbers. But then these special ones seem to put their hands up and say, look, me, I'm important. I'm much more important than anything else. And this is actually rather mysterious. I think even mathematicians, that they know how it happens, but I don't think we know why it happens. You know, why does pi show up so often when another number that's very similar is boring and you know, hardly ever see it? 1245, restate my assumptions. One, mathematics is the language of nature. Two, everything around us can be represented and understood through numbers. Three, if you graph the numbers of any system, patterns emerge. Therefore, there are patterns everywhere in nature. Clearly, mathematics has some deep connection to the world. Some people think it's because the world is essentially made of mathematics. The cycling of disease epidemics the wax and wane of caribou populations. What we're discovering when we do mathematics is things that are already there. Other people think, no, this is something to do with the, the, the way human beings think about the world. This is a human pattern-seeking feature. The universe of numbers that represents the global economy, millions of human hands at work, billions of minds, a vast network. And an alien might actually approach this, if it was an alien from a very different culture, might see the world in a very different way. And then maybe what we think are important numbers would not be important to the aliens. My hypothesis. Within the stock market, there is a pattern as well. Right, right in front, front of me. Hiding behind the numbers. Always has been. Turn. If I had to pick a favourite number, I mean, I, I love them all, but if I had to pick one, there's one called the Feigenbaum constant. 
and it's 4.669. And like pi, it just goes on and on and on and on. And this is fundamental to chaos theory. It's a number that comes up in certain kinds of chaotic dynamics, which are things that look random, but actually aren't. So this is one of the great secret numbers of mathematics. And one of the reasons I like it is because it's only very recently that the human race discovered that this number was important. Because until we had chaos theory, it was just some, I mean, nobody would ever think about it. And I always feel that when people say, mm, we're going to contact aliens, let's send them pi to millions of decimal places to show how mathematically sophisticated the human race is. I'm thinking, well, if there are aliens who aren't interested in circles, but know a lot of chaos theory, they're all sitting there saying, what's happening to 4.669? It's a good question, though. Are they, though? Because, well, we don't know. If they like chaos, they might be. If there's any aliens listening, get in touch with the show. But it's it's odd that Pi is so ubiquitous. Almost everyone on the planet has probably heard of Pi. Yeah. Whereas the Fagenbaum constant, very few people have heard of it. Yeah. Even though it appears a lot, again, in nature. So it's like it's in population but, dynamics and, yeah. like, and like dripping taps and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, any, any kind of chaotic system, yeah. it, it will appear there. But pi is something you learn so early in your life mm. and you use it in mathematics really early. Whereas you only use Feigenbaum's constant in, you know, if you're doing chaos theory stuff, which most of us aren't Quite ever high doing. Level stuff. Maybe that's the mathematician's pick, obviously, but the average Don is just going to kind of go with pi, yeah. aren't they? It's like Pi is like saying the Beatles are your favourite band. Maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't believe we're um, we're mugging off Pi. Maybe I'm quite a basic bitch when it comes to I think, I yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, would Pi be your favourite number? Uh, I don't, I just, it's really difficult. I would say, no, I think I. Oh, is it? Probably. Yeah. Like, pi, pi when I was younger, and then when you really get stuck into how powerful imaginary numbers are. Yeah. Um, I mean, they are—they're amazing. Yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to go for something a bit left field. Actually, have you ever heard of Graham's number? No. <laughs> so there's this guy in the in the 1970s called Ronald Graham. Uh-huh. He was a mathematician, and uh, he was basically trying to solve a problem to do with cubes in higher dimensions. Yeah. Right? And so he set his computer to working, and it got an answer. But the answer <laughs> involved a number that's so big that nobody can write it down. So. Uh-huh. You can't. Well, like bigger than a Googleplex. Yeah, yeah, much, much bigger. I mean, Googleplex is is tiny compared to it. So, so nobody can actually. The weird thing about this number is I can't tell you what it is. Obviously, right? yeah. Um, and I can't tell you how many digits it has. Loads. And and I can't tell you how many digits its number of digits has, or how many digits the number of digits is number of. Di- I mean, it's like literally you don't know anything about it except it is an answer. And uh, and, then, and it's big. <laughs> basically, you have to have some new ro- notation. So instead of having exponential like e to the x, mm. you have this thing called the up arrow, and it's like you extend exponentiation, so you go up and up and up. You know, and you just basically put in that number of arrows. It's like- E to the X to the X to the X to the X to the yeah, X yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So okay. and and uh, but you just so you just can't actually write the whole thing down, but it does exist, and it's a solution to to his equations, and that is your favourite number. I I quite Behave like things that yourself. nobody can understand. <laughs> that is a shit favourite number. No offence to also, Graham. Also called Graham's number. That's, that <laughs> is quite funny. nice. No, isn't it's it? funny. It's Graham's number. Oh yeah, Graham. <laughs> 
Oh, no, uh, not that Graham, the other Graham. What's Graham's address? <laughs> well, it's tricky, actually. <laughs> um, okay, so let's have a look at the question again. Do some numbers have special significance? Hell I'll take this. Yes, yes, they do. Yes, they do. I imagine that people are slightly surprised listening that something hasn't come up in this and, discussion. And that something would be infinity. In- infinity. And the reason that infinity hasn't come up is infinity isn't a number. And we haven't really got time to go into that. <laughs> Four uh, hours into the podcast. Now let's talk yeah. about infinity. <laughs> um, but I mean, hopefully, I don't know uh, when, hopefully we will do a whole episode about infinity because infinity yeah. is um, but absolutely not, fascinating. Not today because it's getting dark outside. Yeah, but it, but it is, it's, it's not a number. Um, it's something that is... Uh, conceptual. Um, yes, conceptual. And vital. And just a little teaser for you. You can get different sizes of infinity, and it's lovely. <laughs> um, so you can have a little infinity. It's just a little pecker infinity. And then a big old infinity that's laughing at the small infinity. We can't stop ourselves. Let's, let's just stop now. Uh, yeah, okay, that'll do. Now, I've got some bad news. We are going to take a few weeks off because we are a little bit tired. But I've also got good news. Uh, we'll be back with all new episodes and totally revitalised, brimming with enthusiasm. Am I right, Brooksy? Oh, yes. Well, I will be. I don't know about you. No, I will You be. seem to be in a bad mood all the time at the moment. I'm just, I'm, like I say, I'm just tired. I just need a little rest. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and Ivor Slayer-Manley. Edited by L. Scott. Special thanks to Professor Ian Stewart. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us on whatever app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It does help. And check us out on Twitter at science underscore ish. You'll be very unsurprised to hear that I got obsessed with Pi when I was about 13. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I memorised Pi to 100 decimal places just because I thought oh I should do. Three, well, hang on. 3.141592665. Oh, no, no, we haven't got time for this. So, hang on, shut up. 3.141592635359723286. That's the first 20. <laughs> Advertisers withdrawing <laughs> <laughs> left, right and centre. <laughs> Your computer makes thousands of connections every day, just like the one it's making now to deliver you your audio content. Why not unlock some little connections of your own? Pick up a box of Cadbury Heroes today, stay at home and share them with your family or friends. Sometimes it's the little things that bring us together. 